It is September the 30th, 2021, and you're listening to Curiously Polar. Yes, we're back. All the three of us. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> hi, Henry. <laughs> hi, Mario. Hi, Chris. Hi, Mario. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? Hi, hi Henry. Yeah. <laughs> doing good. Doing good. Um, yeah, it's time for another episode. We are... Um, I think I need Mario to do a sound check. Say something, Mario. Sound check, uh, sound check here. One, two, three, four, five. In total, four, five, six, two. That is good. We're doing a live sound check on the show. Henry, give me a sound yeah. check. <laughs> oh, we forgot that in the beginning. Okay, one, two, three, one, two, three. <laughs> That's fine. Now <laughs> people, people know how. How about we... the batteries to your camera? Did you oh dang! I haven't changed yet. Yeah, then go go do this. We we're not editing this out. Hurry up! Hurry up! Change your batteries. <laughs> This is this is uh, this is how the sausage is made um, because we mm. we meet every week and then we try to make sure that uh, we get something on here. There's actually quite a lot of preparation in this episode, I must say. Um, we have a a pretty a pretty uh, interesting one coming up with a lot of polar newsreel and uh, of course the interesting topic about the most interesting man in the world so um which which is not henry which is not henry is he? no he's but not. it could be it could be possibly there he is so let us begin <laughs> we've stalled enough let us begin with the actual episode um <laughs> the newsreel as usual in the beginning um first entry we have our puffins and washing machine waves what is this about this is a this is in nature.com so um. yes yeah this is uh this is a research highlight from nature and uh, it's about researchers having looked at uh, the influence of the changing climate so the increase in uh, storms and uh, the survival of puffins and puffins like uh, all the alcids especially so the uh, these small uh, marine birds they depend on the sea for food and for a good part of their life they are mm. at sea if the sea is rougher they have a much harder time in uh, finding the food and also in surviving events of uh, of really rough weather because uh, they also too can die because of uh, being taken in a very bad storm and uh, the Th influence of climate no they can't is, they don't uh, fly right yeah. uh, so they don't just fly well, they, above they no, they don't just fly above, they also dive. They have to go and dive right. down. Puffins can take a lot of fish, uh, small fish in their beaks and take and it back to them. much better swimmers yeah. than flyers. Yeah. And, um, but um, if the sea is too rough, they have problems. <clears throat> so this is um, one uh, warning for uh, puffin populations. And now there is also, I didn't put it in the newsreel, but uh, there is a genetic delineation of the different populations. And uh, there are now been identified a population that is including Iceland, the Faroe Islands and Norway. This is one population, a population in Svalbard, a population in uh, Canada. So we have these, uh, these are the populations of puffins and in uh, they are doing okay for the moment, but uh, there is a kind of a like warning sign for poor puffins. Okay, and it's not the first one. We already have uh, the warning sign that the um, food chain 
is just diminished and uh, puffins are not finding enough food anymore. And by that, you already can see um, populations in uh, Iceland and in the Faroe Islands particularly um, getting smaller and smaller. So we, we saw those effects in the past years and uh, yeah, this research paper now puts um, also a different angle. Yep. Yeah. All right. That's Next up in yes. the newsreel is um, <laughs> we're back to to poop. <laughs> Let's talk about penguin Sorry poop. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. This is uh, Fist.org. Yeah, uh, giving yeah us this article. is um, yeah, this is uh, um, reporting on a on an article. There is uh, uh, looking at. Uh, um, the a record of about six thousand years of layers of penguin poo in uh, it's, it's poop archaeology um, in the Ross Sea. So yeah, it's poop archaeology. So uh, penguins they go to the same place, to the same colonies, and they have done so for thousands of years, and they accumulate guano like uh, poo in uh, many layers and these layers become hard as rock practically and uh, they if you take a a sample a vertical sample of these you can go back in years and uh, see what is the composition of the poo and what elements are there now these are penguins that are in the ross sea in uh, a, a place uh, that uh, very very properly <laughs> called the inexpressible islands is uh, not very uh, it's not very frequented but the chinese uh, expedition went down there in uh, uh, close to uh, uh, victoria land and terranova bay and wood bay and uh, they have looked at the cadmium in uh, in penguin poop and cadmium is a uh, an element it's a metal that is uh, present in the deep water that is uh, circulating antarctica and this deep water comes up a little bit further up or further down depending on the climate and uh, how the uh, the climate of course influences these currents and uh, the cadmium is taken by uh, the uh, um, zooplankton by the krill and the penguins feed on the krill. And so they have been looking at, uh, uh, these researchers have been looking at how the um, there have been events of uh, warming and cooling of the climates, and they've been able to uh, date them back to, for example, a thousand years ago, there was uh, a uh, this uh, warm circumpolar deep water that welled up and melted the sea ice. So there was a melting about a thousand years ago. And uh, there were a couple of uh, cooling events as well. So penguin poop can actually help in climatology. And it's another proxy for climate uh, in recent years. Because, of course, in Antarctica, you have a, a record from the ice core that goes back a couple of hundred thousand years. And... Uh, and the uh, the last years are so thin. The uh, the recent uh, the past couple of thousand years are, are so thin a layer in the ice that it's kind of difficult to look at the resolution. I mean, you see the big picture, but you don't see the small defined picture. And this gives a fine picture, and so it's is that, very interesting. It, is that instead of an ice core, that's a poop core, or <laughs> that's a poop core? Exactly. It's are they, a poop are they drilling core. in into the poop? And yeah, <clears throat> yeah, or uh, I've, I've or just added shoveling. a new word to yeah. my to my vocabulary. Yeah. Wonderful. Yes. <laughs> um, let's stay with penguins and count them. <laughs> yeah, 
And uh, this is for the people that would like to see some penguins, albeit in uh, on the screen, and help research. Like in this website, and we'll put the link, of course, in the in the show notes. So you will see the link in the show notes. You can actually help researchers by analyzing visually pictures and uh, uh, checking how many animals are there, how many nests and how many eggs and how many chicks, depending on which pictures you have. It's a little bit like, I don't know if you've been uh, on, uh, like sometimes uh, Google uh, photos help, uh, like ask for your help in identifying where so are the pictures with a car. A or crowdsource some. scientific it's, work, so to speak. It's a crowdsource scientific work. And of course, these systems might be at one point uh, uh, surpassed by uh, artificial intelligence and uh, different algorithms. But for the time being, we are very good with our eyes and we are much better than machines at looking and cheaper than and looking at, uh, uh, for example, counting how many penguins you have on a beach. And if many people are looking at the same picture, of course, there are going to be different numbers given different figures. But there is a homing in on actually a picture uh, a figure that is that is good that is uh, appropriate and I'm of not, course there are some checkings by researchers after that but it's very interesting i'm not sure if i remember in the early 90s when um internet was coming up and there was this c-type project that connected um domestic computers and where you could just whenever you don't use the computer you could just give um, access to CTIE to actually extend the, the uh, calculation power for the telescope for searching for extraterrestrial life. And uh, that's a similar crowdsourced um, citizen science project as is Penguin Watch. And Penguin Watch originates actually from uh, the University of Oxford, right? Um, Tom Hart, who initiated the project, um, is a research fellow from um, University of Oxford. And um, he works with the expedition cruise industry in Antarctica to actually uh, save some costs, go down to Antarctica, um, hold lectures on board, but also use that as a transfer to set up cameras and um, maintain cameras. And that's pretty awesome when you have those kind of people on board. It's not only a project you can do at home, but particularly once you've been down there, people are getting really connected to that. And um, they really get a get attached to penguins, to certain penguin species more than others. And then they just take the time um, in a coffee break or whatever, or in the evening, instead of watching a movie, and just opening that website and start counting penguins, which is pretty amazing. It's, it's, it's a really nice project. It's also, I guess, exactly. easier to count penguins than to count whales. I, I'd like to remind <laughs> everyone of a very early episode of, um, of Curiously Polar, episode 8. It was really early in 2017 when when Mario and I started doing ago. this, and yes. we talked about uh, how to count whales. And I, I just want to remind you, whales come in layers; penguins don't. So, <laughs> oh, they they do yeah. too. They do too. But penguins have the the huge um, advantage they're getting out of the water for for breeding. <laughs> so you actually so, so on land. Let's put it this way: penguins <laughs> on land usually don't. Penguins exist come in layers, out in the right? in the open. <laughs> yes, they don't go down. And, so, if anyone uh, wants but, to to yeah. hear a young a young Mario, then you have to listen to <laughs> episode eight. Um, a, a less a less old Mario. <laughs> yes. Okay, oh, that's um, a nice nice segue to. Um, uh, a similar project, actually. Yes. Also citizen science, um, but just for marine mammals. And it's called Happy Whale. Um, it's 
uh, started by Tat Cheeseman, who's also part of the Expedition Cruise industry, and he actually tries to connect the Expedition Cruise industry to marine mammal researchers. And it started with the Library of Wales, and it is, in fact, a humongous library of whale pictures. So everyone who takes some pictures of um, of whales, particularly the fluke, uh, um, the tail, basically, or the um, dorsal fin of whales, which is helps often the only thing that you it. see on the photos, right? Of course, certainly. Yeah. But for example, for humpback whales and for sperm whales, the the fluke is unique. It's not the fingerprint for whale, and that helps a lot uh, for sci- uh, scientists to um, track movements, uh, to track. Um, how migration routes look like and uh, how much whales are actually traveling. And recently, the uh, database actually um, extended also to seals. Um, we're working with um, a Ukrainian uh, researcher from Ronatsky Station who is focusing on, on orcas, but also on leopard seals. And you can upload those pictures there. They have an AI behind it that actually analyzes the um, the individual features of that uh, particular individu- uh, individual and then um, yeah, tries to identify it. And then you have participated in actually um, tracking the migration behavior of whales, of seals. It's, it's a really nice, awesome tool. Yes, I mean, the, uh, the human eye is... Uh helping in the training of the AI, of the machine. So these are really interesting algorithms. And you can uh, have uh, principally, of course, as you, as Henry said, you can identify the individual whale and so see, okay, this whale has been here on this day and in this other place the other day was associated with this other whale. Like if you take pictures of several in the same group and anybody can do this and of course when you are down on an expedition cruising there are lots of people with cameras and passionate photographers that can take really really nice pictures of these flukes even though it's not as easy as it uh, might sound to take a good picture (laughs) but um, the uh, it depends also on the time scale we are talking about because uh, it's uh, also very important to look at reproduction uh, Mm. of the whales so who is the um, parent of who so if you can take a a large whale with a with a newborn with a calf you can see the relationship without having to take samples and analyze genetics uh, similarities or uh, parenthood biogenetics and in the long run you can also look at longevity so how long does a whale live now we're talking about animals that are spanning at least uh, four decades or even longer so we are talking on the very long term but now happy whale has been on for quite a while and uh, and uh, there are going to be results of uh, like looking at vital parameters which previously were very difficult to obtain or obtainable only with invasive methods all right or and being ha- there happy, happy whale yeah. participated tremendously to identify pretty much every humpback whale in the waters around Vancouver Island, for example. So the uh, companies who do whale watching there, the conservation organizations, they have a very clear understanding of uh, what kind of animals are around there. And when they have newborn, they can really quickly identify who um, whose calf is it, actually. And um, Happy Whale really has uh, simplified that process. It has yep. also helped to connect local databases. Like every whale watching company has kind of a data set for, for themselves to uh, identify individuals. And 
projects like Happy Whale are just combining them and really get a, a better overview of global migration routes, of global populations. Yes, right. and uh, when I, when I started with uh, with whale research in the in the early nineties in the Mediterranean, uh, there was a, we were working at a catalog. We were using uh, analog pictures and uh, black and white film and uh, and pushing the film for it was a different a century, wasn't it? Thing. It was a different millennium, actually, <laughs> and. Uh, and and so you you would end up at the end of the season with a catalog a paper catalog of printed pictures of the whales and in this case it was fin whales so you're looking at the, the coloration of the of the uh, of the back of the whale uh, close to the blowhole and to the and to the um, to the uh, dorsal fin and you would physically go and go for example to the central coastal study in uh, Massachusetts and uh, and check your pictures against their picture one by one taking it one in your one hand one in the other hand and see things what kind have of really characters changed. are together it's, especially so the advent the, of, of machine learning of, of these uh, yes. algorithms i mean today your your smartphone can tell you can tell apart cats from from dogs even different breeds of animals so exactly um, it's really yeah. it's really amazing the advancements that we have and in these things the latest development that we're we are going to be pushing in the in the next years at least some research are doing uh, is to try to merge all these data into something that can be used for estimating abundance so the estimating abundance of marine mammals or of any other kind of animals by opportunistic observations do this whales still... have have any privacy expectation <laughs> only when they're diving down for the moment because there are going to be drones underwater drones like our <laughs> penguin we are. penguin underwater drone that we talked about a couple of episodes ago yes exactly okay so, very interesting projects and all of our listeners are very welcome to try and uh, i'm betting that a lot of them are going to be really hooked onto these systems especially the penguin one it's my favorite <laughs> <laughs> very cool let us let us stick with penguins and with uh, citizen science there is uh, a bit of a, a bit of a, um, of a freak find that happened in new zealand Yes, and this is uh, actually it's from the Guardian, and uh, Guardian has uh, very interesting sections about uh, sections about science and the environment. And uh, in this one here, it's reported uh, that uh, a school trip uh, of uh, what's it called middle school kids, because they were thirteen year old, went uh, on a on a week kayaking tour in the northwest of North Island, uh, close to. Uh, close to Auckland and in, on the last day uh, a kid was uh, one of one famous kid now was uh, looking at some rocks and found this fantastic fossil and this fossil turns out to be a new species of penguin and not just any kind of penguin because it was 1.4 meters tall and from the beak to the end of the tail it would be 1.6 so it was just yeah maybe not a, as big as a kid there but uh, Quite just, big, just so imagine a very powerful penguin. Into a one point four meter tall penguin. Wow. Yes, that's uh, and uh, you What's have the biggest uh, penguin alive right now. Yeah, that's that's the one the that emperor. you have in the picture there. You have the emperor penguin, right? And uh, and uh, they are like about a fifth taller than an emperor penguin, right. and uh, they are uh, uh, they were probably very good swimmers. Now there are speculations, of course, why do big large vertebrates 
die off or give uh, or become extinct. And of course, there are uh, uh, ecological explanations about the fragmentation of the niches and things. But uh, this penguin must have been a formidable swimmer with a lot of endurance and the possibility of swimming very, very deep. And uh, we are talking about marine sediments, this uh, limestone there. We are talking about an animal that would be Still, it would not be like an ostrich or an emu down in New Zealand or one of these giant land birds. It would be a swimmer. And it's not the largest penguin we're talking about. So historically, um, we have um, historical species or like, yeah, we found remains of, of species which are supposed to be, have been much larger. Um, I remember... Penguin, I think it was called Colossus penguin, which was um, thought to be two meters tall and over a hundred <laughs> kilograms heavy. That's humongous. That's, human. that's, that's like human size th- and bigger. Yeah, that's like 30, 40 million <laughs> years ago. And I remember that because it was um, uh, there were remains found on on Seymour Island in in the Weddell Sea, like on the on the western tip of uh, on the eastern tip of the Antarctic Peninsula. And that's a, mm-hmm. a a very interesting find in that area because we also found a lot of um, dinosaur uh, remains there. If you if you remember from uh, one of our previous episodes, but um, if you put those puzzle pieces together, it's also interesting to understand why they actually um, got extinct, right? Um, to figure out when did that transition happen of um, a bird that was capable of flying into a flightless bird that spends most of the time in the water. So those kind of um, chains need to um, rely on a lot of guessing right now, and those kind of puzzle pieces coming together are helping a lot to yeah get a, a clearer picture here. All right, from Very penguins to weather, we are talking about ice and and clouds. Yes, uh, we are going back to uh, fizz.org and reporting on a, uh, a Japanese expeditions up in the uh, in the Chachki Sea, and um, they went uh, and uh, were checking uh, like how do clouds form, and uh, they found out that uh, these. Uh, particles there are particles that raise in the atmosphere and there are more and more of these because of the increase in storms like we're talking about for the first newsreel article about puffins so there are these cores that are spread out in the atmosphere and taken up in the atmosphere and these are ice nucleating particle or INPs and they these particles then form ice crystals. And these ice crystals, when they get to their proper height, they are part of an ice cloud formation. And when I talk about ice clouds, is different from vapor clouds as opposed to vapor clouds. So ice clouds are looking almost the same uh, to a newbie. The difference is that is that when there is an ice cloud, you have more solar radiation penetrating and uh, reaching the atmosphere. So the energy balance of the surface of the Earth through ice clouds is different than through normal, like vapor, I say normal for our latitude, vapor clouds. 
and uh, and this means that you have for example a delayed in freezing of the sea ice and uh, and that is uh, that is something that is uh, new actually uh, this uh, creation of ice clouds formation and the feedback between the storms so the increase in in the frequency of the storms and the increase in ice clouds formation that uh, could uh, for example increase the global warming factor like the warming factor in uh, in uh, in the arctic and that's, uh, and that's very an... important for weather predictions it's also very important to understand why sea ice forms later and later in uh, certain areas we have a higher movement on the oceans so uh, if we have storm waves then it's really difficult for sea ice to form to actually form larger bits and pieces you know, we have a choppy sea we still have possibility to form pancake ice and grow larger in a stormy sea that's just breaking apart it's not growing to something large and that's particularly something that has been um, identified in the Beaufort Sea which was for a long time kind of the nursery of sea ice in the Arctic and the rough of wet weather there just um, keeps the ice from maturing from going down there and turn from one year old ice into two year old ice so we have much younger ice that's more likely to melt down in um, rising summer temperatures yeah. yeah and when we now see also the ice cloud formation, that adds another layer on that. So the storm does not only keeps sea ice from forming in the early season, it also creates another type of clouds that makes solar radiation much easier to penetrate and then add onto that melting process on the ice from the uh, from the surface. So a kind of feedback mechanism, yes, isn't it? Yeah, yes, certainly. because you have if you have ice over the sea, even if there is a storm, you don't have the aerosols and the Exactly. Salt particles coming out and increasing the uh, heat budget of the of the Earth. But that's uh, that's uh, very important for climate modeling, but uh, definitely not uh, not uh, good news for those that are hoping that we are limiting the climate warming. All right, uh, let's stick with climate for a second. We and have one ice. more topic, and uh, it's <laughs> ice related. Here we go. With, it's the uh, Arctic sea ice. <laughs> Nature.com yes. uh, about Arctic sea ice. Yes. Yeah. And uh, we are uh, now at the uh, at the middle of September, end of September. Well, today is the end of September, but usually in the middle of September, the Arctic sea ice hits a minimum for that particular year and in extension we are talking about extension of arctic sea ice and in the graph here for the ice cover you see the red line is where we are now so we have been hitting the uh the minimum for this year now there Wait, is what, what does a, this show this shows the amount of so, ice or so we no, have the area the, oh the area, the area okay square yeah, the kilometers surface, there we go yeah the ice extent so uh and in general in the in the uh past couple of decades we have had a, a uh, decrease of around 13 percent in extent per decade of the sea ice now in this graph you see the the year all the months of the year and the lines are giving the different extents for each month for the years from yeah 2012 and right. until today actually no 2000 no 1981 actually the mm -hmm. first ones with yes. the first satellites going up and, and getting the the surface and uh, we can see that uh, even though we are not now at the minimum absolute minimum sea ice extent recorded which was in 2012 we still have a downward trend and we still have a uh, 
a problem. It is still with, significantly uh, lower yeah, than it's still it used significantly to be, lower yes. than the um, than the median, which is the uh, the line that we have up on the uh, the what's it called? It's a green, dark green line. Um, now, when we're talking about sea ice, extent is one thing. We also have to look at uh, the thickness, and this is much more difficult to estimate. There are different ways of trying to estimate the thickness of the sea ice, and there are ways of measuring it, but of course you have to be on site, and that's not possible over such a large basin. We have the age, as Henry was uh, talking about before. You have one-year ice, multi-year ice, and, uh, and then you also have to think about the thawing. So the different in thawing with different regions like uh, this year for example there has been or this season there has been a, a thawing a, a very dramatic early thawing of the of the sea ice on the north of russia um, the uh, kara sea and the laptev sea have been ice free extremely early in the season uh, so uh, so that's uh, that's also quite important and sea ice being on the sea also floats about <laughs> and uh, can be moving from one side to the other. The old ice in the Beaufort Gyre north of the Canadian archipelago is uh, shifting and uh, pressing more towards Greenland. So there is more uh, open water area in the Chachki Sea. There are extremely interesting dynamics out there and uh, it's important that, uh, of course, we keep an eye on that and satellites are quite... Uh, quite a useful tool. You know what the article does, particularly with the uh, with the graph here, is that we really see um, it's not getting worse and worse every year in terms of we're reaching the next um, absolute minimum uh, year by year. We see some uh, variability here from year to year. So we, we have some years which are um, doing much better than others. But just because we're not hitting the absolute minimum doesn't mean it's it's overall good. So we can still see that the downward trend over the the decade since eighty one, and that's what um, th those three lines uh, particularly um, make clear here very very much. Because the top line that's the median between um, nineteen eighty one and two thousand and ten. So that's over a very long period. Uh, that's the the average of that long period, and all the other lines are far below that. All the lines of the past ten years, and that's just significant to see. Even though we see that um, we luckily have more sea ice left after this summer than last uh, summer, doesn't mean that the Arctic is doing much better. What played into account is actually um, seasonal weather phenomena. So there is right now a huge debate on how clouds actually participated in uh, protecting the ice cover of the Arctic um, Ocean. And we are talking here about uh, vapor clouds who, in fact, are having a higher albedo than the ice clouds we talked in the previous um, newsreel item. So here we really have a debate going on if the um, lack of tourism in the Arctic might have participated in uh, a cooler climate and uh, not so much warming or if the trend would have been the other way around. So there is some uncertainty. We need to get more data on those effects. But this is a clear indication where the trend goes to, and the trend goes to a much, much smaller um, ice cover in the Arctic. And then, of course, what Mario said is very, very right. It's not only the extent, the aerial extent, it's the volume that matters. And we lost much, much more volume in percentage than we actually lost area. And that's a, 
a hard to grasp thing what that actually means it means that the ice can break up much much quicker it forms very very late so it can't really grow thick and by that it breaks up much quicker has less big flows more of the small flows we remember when we talked about the mosaic expedition um, in extent how difficult it was for the expedition to find an appropriate ice flow to embark all their um, scientists onto that ice flow and make that happen there so that's uh, all related here very nice paper thanks a lot to bring that up mario yeah, you're welcome. And as uh, Walt Meyer from the National Snow and Ice Data Center in Boulder in Colorado, uh, he says, well, the thinner the ice is and the more easily it is pushed out uh, around by the winds and the currents. Yes. And there are a few ways out. And one of them is in the Fram Strait between Greenland and uh, Svalbard. And if there is a breakout of the ice, the ice could actually be fragmented, flow down into the North Atlantic, like actually emptying the uh, the Arctic Basin and uh, cooling off the North Atlantic, which is also an interesting thing. And that, for example, about. happened uh, not long ago. I'm just trying to remember that was 2018, 2019, something in that, when we had a summer in, in Svalbard, when the sea ice actually was very, very close to the north coast um, of, of Svalbard. Usually you have to, to travel quite some distance um, between Sv uh, the north, northern coast of Svalbard yeah. And it was 2019, yes. yes. Yes, I remember. We had we had planned to go on circumnavigating <laughs> Spitsbergen, and, and there was nobody <laughs> that was able to do that. Yes. Exactly, exactly. But it was but not that, because there was more ice, but only exactly, because the ice was pushed, pushed down. out there. Yes, yes. And it's thick enough so that, uh, well, it's thinner, but thick enough that uh, normal, like even ice reinforced ships, they could, ice strengthened hulls, they cannot break through. So, yes. Yeah. yeah. All right, from ice... To geopolitics, we have a couple of things there. Um, one being about Greenland, and that's a particularly uh, interesting thing because Greenland had a landslide um, election on um, a few months back, and the new government he has this um, this label of being very pro-independent, and the prime minister tries to to balance that out quite a lot, particularly um, in the um negotiations or in the talks with Denmark but now something happened um in a in a moment of truth the uh, foreign minister actually um made a statement that wasn't the luckiest is not the was, right yeah, formulation unfortunate an unfortunate <laughs> statement <laughs> an unfortunate statement where he actually um was talking about the possible next um Referendum. Uh, referendum on, on, on the independency of, uh, of Greenland from Denmark. And he clearly said that only ethnic Greenlanders should be allowed to, to vote in such referendum and not um, expats or, or migrants or Danes. And that was even for a, a pro-independence prime minister so much that he actually demoted him, took him down as Minister for Foreign Affairs. He still is Minister for, I think, Industry and yeah, something yeah. but the for, for business um, and trade that's what he's oh, doing business now. and trade yeah, there, there you go trade, yeah, for for everything else he just took away from him um because that's a very very difficult um thing to say just picture that in in different national contacts that's bringing up a very very dark time here and uh actually i mean in practice how do you define somebody that is an ethnic inuit from a non-ethnic Inuit when 
most of the population of Greenland is actually Danish or uh, non-Inuit genes, and uh, it is it is very difficult to uh, like politically. It's bad, but it's also in practice very difficult. How do you define but, a, a? But this is really this is this taking us back to to the uh, late thirties, early forties in in Central Europe, where we had no. similar ideas um, washing around. Just really everything but smart to say something like that it's yeah. just really yeah, exactly. it's not a way to go well and uh and also like now when we're talking about independence greenland has the option of getting uh, uh separate getting independence like uh, it is uh, with the self-rule uh the latest uh, government form uh there is an agreement with Denmark that uh, Greenland can go whenever they want on their own. But uh, the uh, the big issue, of course, is uh, the uh, financial issue. Like, how would Greenland uh, survive? Denmark pays to Greenland just about, just short of uh, 4 billion kroner, Danish kroner. Uh, like, you divide by uh, 10 to get, uh, to get euros, so 400 million euros for uh, the 57,000 inhabitants which is just about 8,000 euros a year per per person in Greenland or maybe even more if you count a few other a few other uh, payments that, Green that Denmark does to Greenland and that is uh, it might not be enormous amounts of money yearly per inhabitant but it's still what makes Greenland a modern uh, developed industrialized uh, we will say mostly uh, industrialized nation and uh, with all the services and the uh, hospitals and research institutions and uh, and transport that we have now and so it is kind of difficult for greenland at the moment with their current current earnings uh, to uh, to get to be independent because as we all know when we became adults and wanted to leave our parents home it's good you want to be independent but you need some cash and at the same time you see that uh, they're balancing out um cash over um long-term interest so the the current government actually took a significant step back from from mining, from large mining projects, particularly in South Greenland, which are, from an environmental perspective, highly questionable. So they actually took down a big buck, really a big bucket of money, um, which would have been a significant step towards independence. But, uh, to, yeah, but yeah? Uh, but if we connect it to the uh, to this thing, it is called the uh, block contribution or block tilskudet from uh, Denmark to uh, Greenland. The agreement is that if Greenland does uh, uh, sign contracts like uh, mining concessions, uh, like the ones that we are talking about here, then this. Uh, amount the amount the worth of the contract is taken away from permanently from this uh, general contribution so and this is uh, agreed upon between greenland and denmark because of the sustainability in the long run of these investments and uh, it is a protection against for the protecting the Greenlandic people against the greed of some, maybe some politicians or some administrators that would like to get the money here and now. And, uh, and it doesn't matter what happens in the future. So they have to think on a long term 
before they uh, accept this sort of contracts with, uh, for example, mining companies. Certainly true, but you, you saw the, the different approaches of the previous government and the recent one. The previous government was very much in support of that um, mining deal, while the uh, recent elected uh, government really took the step back and just said, hey, stop, let's have a look at it and analyze it properly. So, yeah, that's certainly a big step forward here. All right. Uh, and last but not least in our newsreel, um, let's stick with politics and look at the EU and the Arctic. Here's another article from Arctic Today. Yeah, and that's a very interesting um, look into the European Union and its um, yeah Arctic policy or understanding of the Arctic. Um, European Union is a big player in Arctic research, and um, through that, it plays a, a big role as a block of countries to uh, develop the the Arctic. Has a huge interest. Uh, just remember the the. Um, um, expedition from uh, Alfred Wegener Institute um, to to the Arctic, just overwintering a whole um, season there to extend the understanding of climate change in the Arctic. Um, we also have seen that there has not been much movement in the past years. The last Arctic policy of the European Union dates back to 2016, which is a lifetime in the development of the Arctic. We see that not only um, Arctic countries like Russia or the United States are stepping up and putting uh, reinforcements in their Arctic policies. Their, um, the US has just um, issued a new Arctic policy last year, or was it this year? Um, China stepped up, India stepped up, non-Arctic countries who are big stakeholders. And you also can see that um, the European Union tries to push harder and harder over the years to actually get the seat um, in the Arctic Council as an observer, which they tried to for years. We talked about that in uh, one of the last episodes when we talked about the seal ban, um, where we really see difficulties in um, the member states. So now what we see here is the, the, the big junction in the understanding of the European Union of what to do with the Arctic, how to deal with it, and how to move forward there to still keep the interest level, the, to keep the, the impact level, the influence level of the European Union high as it used to be. And, and also coordinating the European policies for the Arctic, because now uh, Denmark, Sweden and uh, Finland as members of the European Union are actually participants, they are the uh, countries, the Arctic countries in the Arctic Council. So the European Union is represented in the Arctic Council, but uh, there, is, there is a wish for a, uh, uh, for a coordination in the actions. And uh, uh, like now these uh, three countries are acting in the Arctic Council as separate countries, but of course they have to uh, coordinate and, and follow European policies as well. So this is uh, where Europe is uh, actually pushing for a, a, an Arctic policy for uh, security reasons, not just for research, and uh, also for, uh, for like food security. Because the uh, low Arctic is, and the North Atlantic especially, is a big fishing area and a very important fishing area. And not only for... Uh, for transport or for military, it is a very important mm, checkboard for uh, for the European Union. Certainly, and we expect the new policy to be um, issued this year. So it's not much time left. So let's see 
what they're coming up with and um, how that looked like. And then we certainly put it up on the table again. All right. It is time to continue our Polar Explorers series. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm actually really curious. Who is this real most interesting man in the world that our title has alluded to? What are we talking about? I think it's uh, it's supposed to be Henry here. Henry is frozen yeah, right he now. froze. He froze a <laughs> I, little bit. I just hmm. lost my network connection. I don't know why. It is back. It is back. Just okay. <laughs> just who who is this? Who is this mystery man? It's an amazing title, isn't it? Uh, who does <laughs> not want to be like the the real most interesting man in the world? And uh, yeah, when we came up with the with a title like that, then um, there's so many ideas flying around. Particularly when we talk about uh, polar explorers, there's so many um, famous explorers up there that we actually could talk about and, and colorful a, colorful figures and colorful characters. Yes. <laughs> and, exactly, and colorful um, characters, but. History is really messy in a, in, in a way. It is very difficult because um, it's super complex. So when we look at exploration uh, history, in particular in Greenland here, um, then it's usually um, the character of Knut Rasmussen who pops up and gets all the fame, all the credits. He's the one who is like in the center stage of, of Greenland. And then, don't get me wrong, he did a fabulous job um, in bridging uh, a number of, of crucial gaps here um, where... Um, culture and science have been brought together so he's done a tremendous effort there and ultimately uh, Rasmussen connected the northern part of Greenland to the rest of the country the more developed southern part on the uh, western part of the island so in that regard he has a very very big stake but he hasn't done all of that alone he was very popular for his time but he had quite some significant help and if we look back in 1908, in the beginning of the century, while on vacation in Bergen in, in Norway, Rasmussen actually met a huge, very, very tall, a very handsome, uh, a good-natured uh, man who was almost like a foot taller than Rasmussen itself, several years younger, much, much fresher. This guy just came back from Greenland where he had um, been part of the of the uh, Denmark expedition. And this expedition is also worth an episode in its own right, bringing um, up another quite well-known explorer whose name now adorns one of the most important polar research centers in the world, Alfred Wegener. And however, we don't want to talk about Alfred Wegener either, but about this young, tall, handsome guy Rasmussen met in Bergen. And the name of this guy is Peter Freuken. And some of you might recall the name. For most of you, however, this name will be completely new. And given the spectacle of uh, his life, this is totally undeserved. And that's why we need to change that today. And I know that certainly you, Mario, yes. you're particularly fond of him. So. Uh, terribly. I mean, he's, because not only he was uh, a, a fantastic figure, but he was also an excellent writer. So oh, yes. any of his books, like if we are going back to the Polar Library, I mean, he has written so many interesting books. Over 30 and, books, if I recall that. Yeah. And uh, a lot of them, I mean, I've read a few of them, definitely not all of them. In uh, And if you read them in Danish, the humor and the uh, freshness of the descriptions that he has, uh, just amazing. But let's go back to uh, to your uh, your tale here of Peter Freuchen. 
And and it starts when he was a uh, very young age. So his his father really tried to push him to a serious job to become a doctor, put him into medical school, and he just really figured that's not his life. So he dropped out of medical school, and he just joined the Denmark expedition to East Greenland when he was 19 years old. He was a junior member in 1906. And just picture that. You're going as a 19-year-old on an expedition with some of the best scientists of that time. So as part of this expedition, he has been asked to run a tiny weather station roughly 40 miles away from the base camp. And he was su supposed to do that for six months, far, far away from everyone else, completely isolated, in a cramped mm. 9 by 14 foot hut. It's tiny. The interior was completely covered in ice, really thick ice, because the moisture of his uh, breathing just has <laughs> overfrozen everything. It's... Just, just picture that. Just try to imagine that. It sounds a little bit like COVID lockdown, eh? Yeah. A, a little bit more than that. A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Except it was a little bit warmer here in my house anyway. <laughs> Certainly. Hmm. So over time, his group of um, sledge dogs, he had seven sledge dogs with him to um, go all the way. Over time, they have been just killed and eaten by wolves that were constantly trying to roam the area and trying to go into the hut. They were sitting on the roof of the hut, of that tiny shed. So he was crouching in, and for most of the time, he had a very monotonous um, daily schedule of measuring temperatures and um, uh, just checking the barometer and stuff. But his biggest worry really was to keep the wolves away. So he mm -hmm. constantly just had his thoughts uh, around that, and that kept him quite alive. So when he came back, being 21... He was already quite an adventurer at a very, very young age. So when he returned from East Greenland, Rasmussen was severely impressed by how this guy has turned out, what he has experienced. And that actually really put them together. What connected those two men um, beyond that was a very, very complicated web of friendship, but also of recent tragedy. And for that, we have to understand the history very, very briefly of the Denmark ex uh, expedition. And three members of that expedition have tragically died. And among them, the expedition leader, Ludwig uh, Milius Eriksen. And while Fröken uh, was part of the expedition, Rasmussen and Milius Eriksen, they knew each other from university. They, they spent time in the University of Copenhagen and then went on together on the so-called literary expedition, which just a few years before had introduced Rasmussen to the uh, polar innate. And that literary expedition, that has set the course of Rasmussen's adult life. So that... Yeah. And there goes the network connection. He's <laughs> <laughs> just amazing. He's back, he's back. Yes, he's Keep back. Going. That has ignited the fire in, in Rasmussen to actually pursue the expeditions he had throughout his life. And another uh, member of the deceased party of that expedition, of the, the Denmark expe uh, expedition, the uh, Greenlander um, Jürgen Brönlund, he was a, a very close childhood friend of Rasmussen. They grew up together in yep. Jakobshavn. When Nansen crossed Greenland, the two of them, they walked to the to the edge of the ice sheet and waited for, for Nansen to come down, not knowing that he diverted his route and um, just came down. He was actually somewhere. coming down to some other place <laughs> <laughs> on a little kayak. <laughs> but the two of them, they were super excited. And uh, now when Rasmussen learns that um, two of his 
a life-changing um, acquaintance just died and Fruken was part of that expedition, that really put them together beyond their general admiration for each other. So when uh, Freuken returned to Copenhagen, he had really, really hard times to reintegrate into society. It was very difficult for him to accept the guys of his age group, uh, his peers, as that network is not we friendly to, we today. To do something with, no, we have to do something. Yeah. Oh, as he's peers, back. You said <laughs> accepting his friends as peers. Or Keep going. So for for him, it was really difficult to to um, accept his um, his peers, the same uh, the guys of the same age in in his peer group as as equal. So for for him, that was really difficult after everything he experienced, after everything he went through, to really see them as. Uh, as equal so for him that was really um, difficult to settle so he decided to start giving lectures giving talks about the arctic travel around uh, denmark and at, at a point he just joined forces with uh, knut rasmussen and the two of them together they actually formed quite of a um, serial comic duo one was tall the other one was short the one was serious one was really silly so that really caught up they they had a, a huge success with those talks they made quite some money and they really talked length about their um, experiences in the course of their lecture rounds at one point rasmussen actually asked fruken if he would like to join him in returning to greenland and the idea of rasmussen was to set up a trading station a business in the smith sound region in the um, northwest of Greenland, and they wanted to try uh, goods to the local Inuit in exchange for fox pelts. So that was one of the businesses, or one of the um, of the of the tasks the Inuit were doing: hunting foxes. So, through um, uh, even though Denmark has uh, colonized the southwestern Greenland, the the land further north that was still under no real jurisdiction, and there were quite a couple of countries that had some. Um, some historical background to to possibly put a claim on. There were the United States, which might have a claim because Perry actually tried to reach the North Pole a number of times and overwintered in the area. Then you have Norway, which might have some intentions be, be, because Nansen and later Otto Sverdrup were setting a seal hunting station nearby. Rasmussen really was um, a, a Danish patriot in that regard, that he really believed it was his task to lay claim on the region for Denmark. So Rasmussen convinced uh, Fröken and they both sailed for North on Greenland in the spring of, I think it was 1999, 1910, something like that. Mm -hmm. And they set up a trading post and named that Thule. And Thule is a historical name that derived from 330 before Christ from a, a voyage of a guy called Pythias, who was a Greek and he sailed north from Greece and reached the pack ice and glimpsed land and the land of the farthest north, he called it. And since then, that was Ultima Thule. So that was the name of the station, the name of a very famous place to become over the next years. The Thule trading station became the base for seven different exploration expeditions between 1912 in 1933, and they all were summarized under the umbrella of the so-called Thule expeditions. 
a pivotal um, event for um, the both of them, for, for Rasmussen and Freuken, came in 1912, when they both set out to the very first Thule expedition to challenge the claim of Robert Perry's belief that the land Perry discovered, so-called Perry land in North Greenland, was divided by a channel, by a strait from Greenland and formed an island. They verified that in a very, very remarkable 1,000-kilometer journey, over 620 miles, um, where they were traveling across the inland ice, um, and they proved that Perry was in fact wrong, um, but that almost killed them. And it was not taken very very seriously by the Royal Geographical Society, was it? <laughs> it wasn't. The, the, the feedback they got was not very um, supporting in that regard. Yeah, but the finest ever performed by dogs, the finest journey ever performed by dogs. <laughs> in, indeed, yes. Um, also, the inclusion of, of local Inuit, um, the team was was four people, two of them being local Inuit, um, helping them hunting, um, supplying for food, all that. All of that was highly criticized by the uh, Royal Geographic um, Society. So there was no big gain from that other than their fame in Denmark increased tremendously. So particularly Rasmussen profited from that uh, quite a lot. So there was the uh, there was the expedition where Freuken actually describes that he he got under an avalanche and he was uh, captured and and then he made a he made a, a poo knife or uh, something <laughs> so that uh, he We're could uh, he could free yes. himself. <laughs> yes, and actually that's that's an interesting article that I've read uh, a couple of years ago about somebody that has uh, actually tested the claim: Can you, in freezing climate, make a knife out of your own feces? That must have been the Mythbusters uh, or someone. <laughs> no. No, 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 no. It's a serious, uh, it's called the experimental archaeology right. out of of this. And and there is a, a big scientific article about this. I'll take it up next time. I pr- promise. <laughs> oh, certainly. Yeah, just just look up. I will really be this is This is Peter Freuken in a nutshell. <laughs> I like it. And it's very well taken by the Danish society and uh, by uh, by uh, a, a different kind of humor and a different kind of attitude than by the British. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the, British, uh, the British are certainly more stiffy in, in, in this regard. But this expedition was almost an ill-fated one. It was really difficult. So uh, when they reached Pyrrhiland, they needed to uh, climb down a 50-meter um, cliff, an ice cliff that really um, was high and steep. So they needed to be laid down. They be laid down on, on so-called sealskin lines. We can't really picture that, uh, making ropes out of sealskin. Yeah, Which, but that's uh, that's why the Danish name for beer seal is the uh, uh, belt seal. Like uh, you make actually uh, lines out of it because yeah. it's so fat, then you can make a, like a spiral around it, and then you make a line. That's awesome. That's really great. But that knowledge, really, they just adopted from uh, from from the local Inuit population. Mm-hmm. So that was also one of the outcomes from both um, Rasmussen and Freiken uh, to actually spent significant time there, learned from, from uh, the history of the Inuit, learned from how they survive in the area, adopt that and turn that into those explorations. But while they were climb, uh, climbing down that cliff, actually a harpoon Frogan was uh, carrying punctured his, uh, his thigh. He, he left him with a very deep wo- uh, wound and his, his pens were really soaked with blood. So it took him a long time to actually recover from that throughout that expedition. So 
that was really um, difficult. And once Freuken was uh, recovered, Rasmussen became ill. He became so sick mm. and feverish that he didn't even want to smake, uh, smoke his, his very famous pipe. So there was a, a lot going on in, in this regard. It took them quite a while to come back. And they actually came back on the last bits and pieces of resources, the last few drops of, of cooking fuel. And only with one flank of musk ox meat um, remaining. So they were really exhausted when they uh, arrived back in, in Thule. But that was just the beginning. The life in, in Thule was very, very relaxed in a way. They had one supply ship, possibly two per year. So they brought newspapers from the entire period um, since the last ship. So they just took their days, right? They took their time and just read newspapers. And uh, and also, like, the supply ships, that's because it was a, established as a trading post that would uh, help the local the local Inuit population, the Thule Eskimos, uh, to, uh, like, to get uh, provisions and things that they needed for their, for their Asher, for their life. Yeah. Exactly. And now we have to picture the whole setup in historical times and that was the start of world war one so when the first tool expedition was finished that was just a year prior to world war one and the start of world war one made the life at thule very very difficult in peaceful times they had very infrequent contact with europe um but that was not really unusual for for Froken, um to really relay on old newspapers and read them just um, whenever they wanted but after the beginning of the war there was just very long stretches where there was no news at all coming from the continent, where there were no ship coming and there were no supplies coming. So there was no way of merchandise to come to the shop, so not much to sell from the store. And Fruken later claimed from that time there were a lot of, of near misses, of near death events for him where um, uh, he was being shot by a cook of a uh, of the camp who mistook him for a polar bear um <laughs> and if you see what he looks like <laughs> with it, the, exactly like you can see we have to like picture him he's like two meters tall um beyond two meters he's a really strong guy and if he puts himself into um sealskin fur or polar bear fur then <laughs> i think it's not very far stretched to mistake him for a polar bear <laughs> no, exactly <laughs> it's <laughs> It's really a story that can be true. Yeah. Um, another incident when he uh, fell through the ice into uh, freezing water, only to be saved by by grabbing, grabbing uh, the harness of of, the, of his sledge dogs and being pulled out by his dogs. There are a number of those stories. Not many of them can actually be uh, checked and proven because he was the only witness. But um, if you see the life in general he spent in the area, when you see other sources coming on, on several events, then it paints a very, very... Um, reliable picture. Yeah. So after World War One, Froken returned to Denmark. He left Greenland, and at the time he was the father of two. He had already married uh, uh, an Eskimo woman um, called Navarana. Mekupaluk. Yes, that's the original name. Mm -hmm. She turned um, into Navarana, or she took on the name Navarana. Mm -hmm. And they had a boy named um, Mikusak and a girl named Pipaluk. And they have much longer names, mm -hmm. which I have to look up. But that was the short uh, version of them. So when they arrived in Denmark, uh, Froken actually turned sick. And that took him almost a year to recover. It was a very, very hard time. And he felt after the recovery, the urge to return to Greenland, to leave Denmark behind. 
So he actually asked Rasmussen if he could join the next endeavor. And at the time, Rasmussen already went out to three more expeditions under the umbrella of the Tula expedition. So it was already the fifth Tula expedition coming up, and that was planned for 21, for 1921. The goal of that expedition, and that's probably the most famous of all the Tula expeditions, is to fan out in the northern part of North America. So basically, along the Northwest Passage by Dog Slat, covering the entire area between Greenland, the Hudson Bay, all the way to the Bering Strait. And that's to connect the Inuit populations and to see. And one of the results is like unifying the Inuit because uh, of the similarities in language and the lead uh, of the way of life. And and that was one of the one of the big uh, feats of uh, Knud Rasmussen and exactly. his uh, his expedition members. Yeah, and they had a, a very famous woman as well in that expedition there, which we have to mention at one point in one of the future episodes. Certainly. Um, the One of the, the big achievements of Knut Rasmussen, um, even though we want to talk more about Freuchen today, but one of the big achievements really was his ethnological studies, his ethnological information um, he gathered on the Inuit population. So that was the centerpiece of that expedition, even though he had geolog uh, geologists on board, he has historians on board. So he really wanted to um, gather as much information on the area as possible. So basically a Northwest Passage by Doxland. And that was a pretty um, big, uh, very ambitious endeavor, probably the biggest of the time. And as you can imagine from all the exploration stories out there, that proved to be very, very disastrous, particularly for, for Freuchen. His wife contracted the flu in the west coast of Greenland when they returned, and she died very, very shortly afterwards. So that was the, um, the flu pandemic in the 1920s. Yeah. So that really um, had a severe impact in his life. He still decided to go on to the expedition anyway, but then his personal um, problems multiplied. He actually froze his, his feet uh, to a way where he really needed to um, amputate his toes, where he really needed to uh, do something to be uh, able to survive. But for him, obviously, that meant the end of the expedition, and not only the end of the expedition. Later on, um, it needed to be um, his leg, his entire um, uh, foot, actually, not the leg, the, the foot needed to be amputated and replaced with a pack. So that was, in fact, the end of his exploring days, his active exploring days. But it didn't mean that he turned into um, a houseman. He then just traveled around. Um, he went on safaris to South Africa and Siberia. He started writing books, and his books, as Mario said um, initially, were very, very popular because of the sense of humor, because of the uh, details he put in there, because of his way of storytelling. Very, very famous yeah. in the time. He painted an amazing picture of the Arctic, about hunting in, uh, in the Arctic, ocean stories, um, as well as some fiction later on. More than 30 books he, he wrote, and he ended up meeting um, and later than marrying a, a, a multi-millionaire in uh, that time, who was the heiress of a huge fortune in 
publishing. What a coincidence. Writing tons of books and marrying into a publishing family. And in the mid-20s in 1925, he actually became the editor-in-chief of a magazine in Denmark called, um, I think Mario can pronounce it much better, uh, Ugo Ochjeme. Udo Ochjeme. Udo Ochjeme. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> and, and the magazine actually still exists. Out and at home. Like outside and at home, he says. Back yeah, in the day, he said, it was actually really an exploration magazine. Yeah. Now it looks more like... Um, a tabloid. <laughs> yes, yes, very much. More more reporting about celebrities. I mean, back in the days, explorers were the real celebrities, right? So that mm -hmm. was um, still part of the magazine's life. And the magazine still exists today. It's still in circulation, so that makes it really uh, relatable. In the late 1920s, he went really um, public, uh, uh, political. He joined the Social Democrats, and he became uh, a regular contributor to um, a political newspaper in Denmark called uh, Politiken. Yeah, and, which is one of the big newspapers now. It's uh, just a, like a daily newspaper. And he really made... His himself a name, he was really standing up for certain beliefs. And remember those books he wrote about his um, his experiences. And at some point, Hollywood actually was paying attention to that. So in 1933, one of his books was turned into a film called Eskimo, and later was renamed to Mala the Magnificent. And that book... Mala or, from the name of his wife. Exactly. And the um, story actually uh, told a, a tale of a fictional Inuit warrior who um, ventures out into the Arctic. Friggin helped writing the screenplay. He translated the dialogue into Inuit. He was the inter uh, interpreter on the set and helped the film crew mm. actually to be able to execute the filming, to survive on the set. So that was really um, something. And eventually he also played the villain in the film, the, the mm. captain. <laughs> so, <laughs> and... Last but not least, the movie actually won an Oscar for Best Editing. Not his mm -hmm. um, cup of tea, but it actually got an Oscar. So he had also his hand in that. So you see, very, very diverse what he's done. So a kind of Errol Flynn-like character, isn't it? Kind of, <laughs> yes. And I, I really would like to see a movie about his life. That would be, or mm. probably would be uh, a franchise, a series of movies. But it's still not finished. Right? During World War II, Peter Franken found himself in the center of a true political drama in Denmark because he was really um, against discrimination. He was standing up against all kinds of discriminations, but especially in the form of anti-Semitism. And during the Second World War, he would actually um, accost anyone he heard speaking hatefully about Jews and going up to them with his really imposing size and, and, and figure – claiming that he was in fact Jewish, which he was not. But he was really going in there and standing up for something. And he was such an active member of the um, of the Danish uh, resistance, resistance yeah. that he became very, very well-known also in Hitler Germany. And it's said that his efforts led to um, Hitler personally ordering him to be arrested and executed after he had been arrested then in France, but fortunately, he was able to escape and uh, flee the country to Sweden, which would be a whole movie on its own, just this uh, chapter yeah. of uh, World War II. But during this very, very busy and exciting lifetime, he still managed to settle down um, at least three times. 
the first time when he actually um, met the Inuit um, woman in 1911, and you sat right, Mario. Her real name or her yeah her birth name was was uh, Mikupaluk, mm. and she na uh, later took on um, Navarana. They had two children later on, a son named in full. Oh God, Mikusak Avatak. Igimaksusukdarangupaluk. Oh, are you are you okay? More or less. More or less. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. He yeah. he became forty five years old and uh, died in nineteen sixty two. Um, and the daughter Pipaluk Yete Tukumingwak Kasaluk Palika. Um, she died in nineteen ninety nine, aged eighty one, and she actually died then in uh, Newcoming in in Denmark. So she went home, mm. or she, she went to the home place where Peter Fröken actually um, got born. Mm. But um, after his first wife actually died on the Spanish flu in nineteen twenty one, um, Fröken married the, a Danish woman, um, which was very famous at that time, uh, Magdalene van Lauritsen, in 1924. So she was um, the Harris of... Uh, that's not her in the picture, though. Um, she married... Uh, uh, she was a, a, a sprout of a very popular family at the time uh, with that magazine we talked about, with a huge publishing um, empire. empire. Yeah. And they got married for uh, 20 years before they then decided to split off. And at the end of World War II, when fleeing um, the, the Third Reich, um, Fruken actually met the Danish-Jewish um, fashion illustrator, Dag McCone, and that's the lady we see here in the picture and the video version together with Fruken. And that's a very, very popular picture because it really shows you his his statue, you know, right? You know, for for the entire episode, I'm 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 the one who clicks and shows the picture. The entire episode, <laughs> I've been waiting for this moment to show for this, this moment very picture because this, this must be one of my favorite. This is the, the the main reason for you to watch this on a video on YouTube mm. um, because this is just this is just such an amazing picture. He's so imposing, even though he has only one leg. Um, but his his fur coat, the, his per, his it's, his persona, it's polar bear. yes, and he's a piece of polar, polar bear, bear and <laughs> and uh, and the the very elegant lady next to him, his wife. Um, mm. It's just it's amazing. It's just such an amazing photo. I think I need to print this out and hang it up on my wall. Oh, certainly. But but looking at this, you you actually can get the the idea of someone mistaking him. Uh, as a polar bear when he is roaming around Absolutely. someone's snowstorm outside. <laughs> so it, it's not that far-fetched, right? But but, uh, but she was actually uh, quite an important uh, uh, participant in his expeditions, actually. She was... Mm -hmm. uh, she joined her in she joined him in one of the travels and expedition in Iceland and she was very interested in local cuisine so she was actually serving whale blubber and seaweed <laughs> and he was like, very curious yeah. of testing all that so finding kind of a soulmate in, in trying all yeah. that out was really really uh, something so it, it really looked like they clicked on all levels and when you see at what time that happened, that was really um, something uh, something special for, let's say, the last chapter of his life. So they actually um, emigrated to, to America, and after arriving in, in America, he found new ways to find excitement. Um, so in 1956, he actually participated in an American television quiz show, 
the $64,000 question. So he participated and he didn't only participate, I believe he was the first person who won that um, $64,000, which was a humongous amount of money back in the days. So really something. <laughs> he joined the New York Explorers Club where he um, actually got a, a painting created of him, uh, of his, and just put up the wall. And it still hangs on the wall amongst all the taxidermine hats of exotic uh, wildlife. And he, he was also the founder of the Danish Adventurers Club. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And he later got awarded the, I think, what was it? The, the gold medal of the Benjamin Franklin Society mm. for his service to mankind due to his exploration history. It's really um, amazing what he has achieved in his life. And if you, we, we put that video of the $64,000 question episode uh, into the show note. If you listen to it, he has an amazing sense of humor, even in the English translation. It's, it's amazing. And as stated a number of times now, he has written so many books. His final published work actually appeared um, after his death. Um, he got a heart attack in 1957 uh, at the age of 71 in Anchorage, uh, where they were living back in the days. He asked for uh, his ashes to be, to be scattered over uh, Thule. And his wife actually uh, fulfilled that wish. And um, where his life as an adventurer began, so his ash was just um, you know, scattered. And that's really um, a very, very nice ending to such an amazing life. We haven't tackled half of what he has achieved. It's just like bullet points. It would probably turn out into three, four episodes, um, uh, series just on, on his life, right? And Mario, I'm, I'm sure you have many more um, stories behind that. Um, I think yeah, I think you have been fantastic in uh, in giving a picture of uh, Peter Feuchen and and, uh, and what he has been achieving, and uh, and also of the kind of person he was. I mean, look at him here in this picture; it's the last known picture of him, and uh, it's uh, like you see the the size, the uh, but, but also <laughs> but also the posing, which is kind of a. I, I wouldn't say it's, it's a statement. Yeah, it's a statement. A statement, but he is not. Uh, is not uh, like intimidating. No, he's, he's a friendly giant. Smart. He's a friendly it's, giant. It's a gentle giant. There, yes, fantastic person. He must have been. Wow. And now just just think about um, all he went through, all he experienced, all he uh, he ventured through. And when you didn't just hear people saying of what they have achieved in their life, then. Um, it's very, very difficult to compare that, but I think very, very few people in the history of mankind can claim to have experienced uh, experience even just a fraction of what uh, Freudkin has as this real-life giant um, experience throughout his, his life. And for me, whenever I read about him, whenever I uh, dig into his books, it <laughs> It 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 drops draw uh, it drops jars really it's just really yeah. something um, it's hard to grasp hard yeah. to believe no, it's uh, it's amazing and I uh, I really encourage anybody to read books that he has written any book there is no particular order of course but uh, it's just amazing yeah wonderful Certainly. thank you gentlemen for putting this together Henry uh, Mario. Um, I like I like this I like this, let's say uh, 
everyone has their parts, their strengths, different disciplines coming together. Um, this is a lot of fun doing these episodes with you. So it's it's really something um, I enjoy a lot because you know we all have different um, passions uh, which we which we go for and. Adding up on that is is just so much part of this show, and it's it's so much for me very very important. If I bring up a topic like this, um, I know that Mario has a different angle on the same topic, and that adds up to such a big picture in total. Thank you very much. It is really a pleasure. It is fantastic. It is very multidisciplinary, and we are mm -hmm. planning to keep it that way for the next um, well as many episodes as we can get going um yeah with that i would say thank you very much for your time this uh has been a pleasure and uh, we'll be back soon with more interesting stuff of course you can always find us at curiouslyporto.com all our episodes are there we are online as well and until then everyone take care goodbye and uh take care bye bye and stay cool, cool.